According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8, the chapter that does not end. I expect uh, that we can conclude this. Although we've studied four points of study, we've got points five and six to look at. Point five has an A through E and point six has an A through F. But once we wrap up points five and six, we'll be ready to move on into John chapter nine and look at the man born blind. And then we will gain some new ground in realms of scripture that uh, I find to be very interesting is John chapter nine and the man born blind. But there's so much angelic conflict and depth of teaching in chapter eight when you're addressing your father, the devil and the aspects of uh, paternity that get emphasized here, it can take you into some deep things. As a matter of fact, years and years ago, uh, I taught a series in the Gospel of John. And it lasted from 1996 until about 2001, maybe, 2000, anyway. And uh, three or four years, five years maybe. And uh, never got past chapter 8. So this is kind of an interesting chapter for me. All right, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, it's not simply the filling of the Holy Spirit alone, but the the uh, teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with that and the empowerment of our human spirit to receive the things of the Spirit of God, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we thank you for this, this grace provision. We thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to receive the word. We recognize that it must be received with humility that we receive the word implanted, which is able to save the soul. I pray that if there are pride and arrogance issues that would hinder the reception and the implantation of your word this morning, that you would uh, remove those, that, Father, you would reorient our thinking according to your norms and standards, according to your perspective. Father, uh, open the eyes of our understanding and our ears. Guide us in this truth. In particular, Father, hedge us about as we examine the, uh, the adversary and his minions today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have been following, we have gone through points 1 through 4, verses 21 down through 40, or the first part of verse 41, where uh, they answered him in verse 39 and said to him, Abraham is our father, and Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, if you are. Uh, of Abraham, then do Abrahamish things, Abrahamic things, uh, as as it were. Imitate your paternity. Act like it. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Murdering a messenger because you do not like the truth of which he speaks is not Abrahamic. I find it very remarkable how the, uh, the religion of peace that uh, fills our newspapers these days, uh, they claim to be Abrahamic, and yet their deeds are anything but Abrahamic. So he goes on to say, uh, this Abraham did not do, for you are doing the deeds of your father. And that's where we wrapped up in our previous session under point four. Whoops. Missed the mark. In our point four, we spoke about the freedom where he says, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The freedom that Jesus spoke of is of the daily freedom, the daily freedom from personal sin enslavement, how we can live a Christian life with sinless consistency. Not that it's a sinless totality, uh, until we depart this realm, but it is a sinless consistency. I, I really enjoyed that term when Pastor Ralph Braun was in town and gave that to us last fall. So the freedom from the personal sin enslavement, 
And we discussed what happens when we choose to listen to our sin nature. We're actually bending the knee and submitting, swearing the fealty, loyalty to the sin nature. It's a voluntary personal subjection to slavery. And slavery is not good in any context, in any realm. Slavery is inferior to sonship. Again, in any context, in any realm. If you want to talk about the historical applications of human slavery, we can. If you want to talk about the slave market of sin, we can. If you want to talk about the uh, ongoing slavery of the sin experience in the believer's life, that's what this passage is addressing. And slavery is inferior to sonship. A slave is disposable. If I can be blunt, if I can be as cruel in my language as the institution itself reflects that cruelty, a slave, when they have outlived their usefulness, if maybe age or health or strength and whatever, um, what do you do? See, a slave does not remain in the house forever. It's kind of a polite way of saying that uh, when they have used their usefulness, you dispose of them. But sonship is forever. In fact, a son outlives the father. A son receives everything that the father had, including whatever slaves the father had. So when we discuss slavery and sonship, we deal with these issues here. And why, when we're a son to God the Father, do we choose to go into a slavery bondage relationship back to the flesh? When we decide that our selfishness, our carnality, the lust of our of our fallen nature, the old man, are preferable to the uh, glories of the new man. We make that choice every time we commit a personal sin. So since it is so inferior, why do we pursue it? The only and true emancipation from sin is through the Son. We discussed that. That's true both positionally and experientially. And then where we wrapped it up was dealing with these paternity questions. Despite their biological paternity, the unbelieving crowds manifested their diabolical paternity. Yes, they were racially Jewish. Yes, biologically, they were sons of Abraham. But spiritually speaking, they were not Abrahamic. They were of the devil. And we'll get to that again this morning as well, because the language gets even more blunt by the time we reach verse 44. So they manifested their diabolical paternity. We can do the same thing, by the way, in modern times, because we encounter every day in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, we encounter cultural Christians that grew up in a Baptist church or grew up Lutheran or grew up Methodist or what have you. That's their culture. Whether they're regenerate or not, only the Lord knows, right? In some cases, you wonder, did you ever... Did anybody ever sit down and show you the, the provision for eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ? Was that ever brought up? Or was it simply an aspect of uh, going to church, tithing your tithes, going to church, filling a pew, having a respectable uh, appearance in the community? And, um, and, and I want to make sure in this ministry anyway that we never make assumptions that, oh, well, here's a kid. He grew up in Sunday school. He's got to be saved. Not so. All right. In any event, the biological paternity may be at odds with their spiritual paternity, and that's just as much true today as well. Uh, folks that say, "Oh yeah, I grew up, I grew up Christian." Well, okay. When did you place your faith in Christ? At what point were you transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light in the person of Jesus Christ? When did you receive the regeneration? Then we can maybe lock in a little bit more. All right. Note to self. Features the new property will not possess. All right. Which gets us down to point five. The crowds react with anger. The crowds reacted with an angry defense of their legitimate birth. When he started calling into question their father, to them that was fighting words. Okay, I really think it was hitting too close to home and the truth hurts and why they reacted the way they reacted was because he was describing their nature and they responded according to their nature. When you when you stop to recognize the nature of this fallen system, when you go to James and you see the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, that's how people are going to react when they're functioning under the wisdom from below, when they're operating under cosmos principles. So let's see their angry defense. 
Again, you are of your father. You are doing the deeds of your father. So they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. All right. So at the same time, they're trying to be very angry and very forceful. Then they try to get very holy and spiritual all in the same breath. You know, God's our father, right? It's almost like conversations if, you're, if you ever have to deal with a, a highly carnal believer at any time uh, and you, uh, you suggest that perhaps the conversation would go better if you were both in fellowship and then the other person reacts, I'm in fellowship. What are you talking about? Of course I'm not carnal. Oh, okay. I, uh, I misread your body language. I'm sorry. Well, uh, <laughs> Love believes all things, and if you tell me you're walking in the light, then uh, I'll believe that. But the uh, all the other appearances are, are communicating otherwise. See, but here's the thing: how how often does this happen, though, when a believer is so intent on professing what they're doing for Jesus, or what they're doing for this church, or what they're doing for the Lord, and all this other stuff? If the anger component is creeping in, then you've departed from the heavenly wisdom because the heavenly wisdom is first peaceable, then pure, then, you know, and, and you realize what the divisiveness comes from, the wisdom from below. And this is, this is normal. This is what happens when, when the mind is not transformed, the renewing of your mind, then you're conformed to the cosmos, and that's to be expected. So we have this here. We're, we were not born of fornication, you illegitimate, uh, you know, because... They, they, you know what they've done? They went back and they investigated his whole background, his family, all the different things. The uh, even looking into the um, the uh, covenant, the the treaty, the marriage agreement between parents and so forth. That was a matter of public record in Jewish culture. If the if the fathers arranged for their son to these parents over here uh, to their daughter, uh, the terms were all laid out. And they were a matter for the families. They were a matter for the village. They were a matter for the tribe. They were public matters. And uh, even the, the, the value, the cat monetary value of a dowry was established. The monetary value of the, uh, for the bride's price was established. Um, it was higher for the, the uh, a virgin daughter, as a matter of fact. And the public evidence of virginity was a matter of public record. Even uh, the, the morning after the, the, the wedding service, it was a matter for public inspection. That kind of boggles our mind a little bit. You know, um, but that's that was their stipulation written in the law. So uh, all of this and, and they investigated all this and they discovered what did they discover. They discovered that there was an engagement period, which was normal. But then they also discovered that that engagement period was chopped off and that they actually shortened the engagement, went to the to the actual marriage portion of it. You were considered married even during the engagement stage. But they actually cut off the engagement time and entered into the the uh, the one residence aspect of it. And a baby was born, right? December 25th, wasn't that what it was? And uh, whenever Christmas morning, a baby son is born and they said, hey, look at this. Look at this birthday and look at this engagement period. See, like when you today, you know, you observe a birth certificate and it's less than nine months after a marriage certificate. And you say, huh, you know, not that you gossips or anything, but you do the math and it becomes obvious and say, OK, that's what it was. Well, these guys now, hmm, we were not born of fornication. And, um, you know, it's interesting, too, they, they could have even if they really wanted to be ugly about it, they might have even tried to. Uh, levy that as uh, as an adultery charge against uh, you know Joseph. Of course, Joseph's gone by now, but things like that. In any event, he is the legal heir of David through Solomon, and uh, he is entitled to the Davidic throne. And uh, if there was a throne for him to sit on in that day, then perhaps his enemies might have brought up his illegitimate birth, or at least what they thought was his illegitimate birth. It was very legitimate, as we know now. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So Jesus said to them, if God were your father. All right. It's kind of like, here we go again. Okay. Because last week when they said that Abraham is our father, he said, okay, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. If you claim Abrahamic lineage, participate in Abrahamic behavior. Follow in the faith of your father Abraham. He was a tremendous believer, the friend of God. He walked with God. 
believed in God, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham is a wonderful Old Testament example to imitate. So here we go again. We have one Father God. So Jesus kind of, you know, deep sigh. <sighs> All right. Well, if God were your Father, <laughs> do the deeds of God. If God were your Father, you would love me. In other words, your divine paternity would produce an effect. And we'll see that here in a moment. You would love me. This is an if and it's not true. Because the if statement is followed by a would have. Right? And when you have an if followed by a would or a would have, you know that the if isn't true. So if God were your father, you would love me. But since God is not, you don't. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not come even on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. They are actually listening to another voice. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. They're actually not fluent in truth. They're fluent in lie. Their native language is the language of the adversary. Their ears are tuned to the lie. And their ears are listening very eagerly to the lie. So he says, because I speak truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Now in verse 47, he says, you do not hear them. In verse uh, 43, he says, you cannot hear them. And we'll discuss the difference between cannot and do not. I think it's significant. Some people say it's critically significant, but we'll, we'll look at it. So um, that gets us down through verse 47. Then finally, verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, We were right all along. Told you so. Did we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> all right. So it's bad enough to call somebody a, a, a demoniac. Now you're calling them a Samaritan and a demoniac. He just doubled the insult. All right, what are we looking at? Theological paternity generates love for his word. Theological paternity generates love for his word. His written word and his personal word, that is his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word. John eight forty two. If you were, if God was your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. It's this theological paternity. Being a son of God actually implants within your nature. When I, I one time tried to call it a, a divine DNA or something. I'm still working on a nickname for it or some kind of terminology that we can use. Because we are partakers of a divine nature. And we understand this. Kids can understand this. Kids understand that they get things from their mom and they get other things from their dad and whatever else. See, Zoe was teasing me the other day. How come I'm the only person in my family with green eyes? And she said, does that mean you don't belong in our family? <laughs> no. It means I'm the only one that what did, did not have your mother for my mother. <laughs> because all four children got Sharon's eyes. Zoe actually teased me for 30 days after her birth when they looked like they were going to be green. I think they were green for about a month. And then she turned traitor like the others and they all, no, they all have those big, beautiful brown eyes. But what do we get from our Heavenly Father? If we are indeed born from above, if we are indeed born again in language the Scripture describes as a birth what do we receive? What nature do we receive from our birth father, from our spiritual birth father? And so there are other elements of that. This is simply one aspect, a love for his word. A whole new language, as it were. Don't even get me started on the love languages. But this is what we have here, a love for the father and what he speaks to his children. They don't have this, of course. 
Diabolical paternity blocks the hearing of God's word. Diabolical paternity blocks the hearing of God's word. Now we're going to relate verse 43 here over to 2 Corinthians 4.4 and we'll examine it here in a moment. But recognize that you have either the one or the other. It is either you are of your father the devil in John 8.44 or you have a heavenly father through faith in Christ. Diabolical paternity blocks the hearing of God's word. In fact, that diabolical paternity is a wicked, nasty stepfather paternity because we're all Adamic. We have Adam as a father. And then we have uh, the devil as the stepfather or the godfather, or whatever you want to call him, because of his influence in Adam's fall. Now, we're all biologically descended of Adam. We're all spiritually in Adam, spiritually dead in Adam. But we're all positionally uh, politically under the dominion of the adversary. Satan uh, usurped dominion of this cosmos when he took it from Adam. Adam had dominion and Satan took it. In any event, blocks the hearing. Blocks the hearing. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Now, cannot hear can refer to a native inability. It can refer to an intrinsic cannot. But it also can refer, there are other reasons why something cannot be heard. It cannot be heard if something else is drowning it out. It cannot be heard if something, somebody else is being listened to, which we notice here. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So who are they listening to? Who are they hearing? In uh, many human cases, of course, the, um, the hearing is a matter of uh, selective deafness. You hear what you want to hear. You can say, you can say uh, clean your room at large volumes and amazingly not be heard. But you can say, who wants some ice cream? at remarkably low volumes, and they hear you from upstairs, down the hall, around the corner, and, you know, in the closet. Why is that? Selective hearing. As I said, cannot in verse 43 is paralleled with do not in verse 47. And so you do not hear them because you are not of God. And we have to understand when Scripture parallels cannot and do not, we have to understand what then is the explanation for the other. Do they not hear because they cannot hear? Or can they not hear because they do not hear? Because they're listening to something else. That, I think, we see when we relate it over to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Um, what voice are they listening to? Remember, when you fall away from God as a believer, you're not just drifting into nothingness. Second uh, Timothy says you are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That you are choosing this day whom you will serve. Choosing this day whom you will listen to. That listening is a matter of choice in terms of who you listen to. So, these folks, of course, are listening to their, their, uh, the devil, their father. And as a result, as that's coming in, they're not able to hear what the father is speaking to, uh, to them through the son. Now, hold your finger there. Let's look over at Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. Because there are a significant number of folks that hold to the inability understanding of this, that they cannot hear, uh, and that the reason why they cannot hear is because it's, uh, it's a function of fallen humanity. No fallen human can hear. Uh, that total depravity is such that, that uh, there is an inability to even hear. All right. And I think uh, there are plenty of scriptures that address that, and we won't... Maybe touch on them here this morning. But I think Second Corinthians 4.4 4 tells it all as well. Even if our gospel is veiled, we read in verse 3, it is veiled to the perishing ones. The veiling of the gospel. Now, here we change the metaphor from hearing to seeing, which is the same concept, because folks that define inability uh, also include the seeing along with the hearing. In other words, total depravity is such that fallen man cannot hear the gospel. Total depravity is such that fallen man cannot see the light of the gospel. 
And the inability is defined as a native inability that is a part of the fallen nature. It's just as natural to the fallen man as feathers are to birds and fur is to cats and so forth. It's part of what it means to be a fallen creature is the intrinsic native inability. Okay, That's not my view. That's not my belief on it. But a lot of folks hold that view. And they use, what I'm illustrating is that they use John 8, you cannot hear my word as proof saying, ha, see, they cannot hear it. Not seeing the do not is immediately parallel two verses later. Um, here in John 4, or 2 Corinthians 4 then, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And they use this all the time to prove inability. I think it proves just the opposite. Why do you blind a, someone who cannot see? In fact, it's not possible to blind somebody who cannot see. If a, if a person comes in here and they're blind, and then I decide I'm going to blind them, how do I do that? They're already blind. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, the minds, I'm sorry, of the unbelieving. So in order to blind, transitive verb, subject accomplishes the action, takes an object. In order to blind the minds of the unbelieving, then prior to that activity, those minds must not have been blinded. Because it was his activity that produced the result. There's the veil. And of course, Satan is not omnipotent. Darkness cannot prevail against the light. John chapter 1, the light shone in the darkness. The darkness was not able to overpower it. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So whatever the adversary is doing to blind the minds, the light we shine pierces any veil that uh, that goes out there. Anyway, it's a tremendous encouragement for us. Whatever obstacles we face in our evangelism, the light we shine is brighter and pierces whatever darkness the adversary wants to, whatever cloak of darkness the adversary wants to throw out there. All right, now. If you want more follow-up on that, we got question and answer time tonight and so forth. This, by the way, does not deny the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit or the drawing ministry of the Father. No one comes to the Son unless the Father who sent me draws him. I think that's part of what happens when light pierces darkness. So diabolical paternity blocks the hearing of God's Word. Important note that the diabolical paternity in view here is not the Adamic uh, paternity. It's not the Adamic paternity that causes Jesus to say, you cannot hear my word or you do not hear my word. It is the diabolical paternity. So it's not a function of the fallen nature in Adam. It's a function of the angelic conflict in the, uh, in, in the satanic opposition of what we deal with. All right, point C. I got carried away with my peas here. Paternity promotes propitiatory pleasure. Try to forget that this this week. Paternity promotes propitiatory pleasure. When I first wrote it down, it was your paternity determines who you're trying to satisfy. God's children live to satisfy their father. We want to be pleasing in our father's sight. A definition of the Christian way of life is growing in the things of the Lord, learning what is pleasing to him. Colossians chapter one. We should learn what pleases our father. The other side is doing the same thing. The sons of the devil are learning what pleases the devil and it pleases them as well because it's in harmony with their carnal nature. But satisfaction is the concept that underlies the entire doctrine of propitiation god the father's satisfaction god the father's satisfaction we understand the work of jesus christ on the cross was complete total 100 percent satisfaction god the father was eternally satisfied in the removal of sin singular the sinful estate 
He is the Lamb of God who removes the sin of the world. That the wages of sin, singular, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross and Adamic sin was judged. Wrath was poured out totally to tell us that it is finished. Father eternally satisfied. Now, beyond the redemption satisfaction of our salvation comes the daily satisfaction of our Christian walk. And our walk day by day, including today, this Wednesday morning, is either pleasing to our Father or it is not. Are we seeking our own pleasure? So paternity promotes propitiatory pleasure. We have it in verse 29. We have it in verse 38. We have it in verse 44. In fact, it's a thread that controls the hermeneutic of this entire paragraph. Back up to verse 29. Something you told them previously. He who sent me is with me. Isn't that great? <laughs> Only an omnipresent God can do this, you know. If I send a, a, a child to the store, then I've sent them and I'm not with them. I sent them to the store. They're at the store. I'm still at home. But he who sent me is with me. What a delight. And wherever the Father sends us, we have the intimacy of his presence, of his power, of his comfort, his protection. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You ever have a season in your Christian walk where you're not feeling very uh, intimate with the Father? Where it seems as if uh, the embrace of his loving arms is not, as, is not felt, is not perceived as vividly as other times? So it's an occasion to evaluate and consider whether or not your deeds are pleasing to him or whether or not you have drifted into realms of your own selfish pleasures. Because if you are always striving to do the things that are pleasing to him, you will have the maximum enjoyment of that intimacy that we recognize his arms indeed enfold us. Remember, he said he will never leave us nor forsake us, but we drift apart constantly. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and we continue to do that in our post-salvation carnality. Down to verse 38. Again, where he says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, that you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. He says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. See, that's the key right there. I'm glad I spotted that. You heard from your father. So they are capable of hearing. The problem is they're hearing the wrong father. And because they're so locked in on what they're listening to, they're not hearing this other voice that they should be listening to. See? <laughs> like when your husband, I've got mainly wives here, when your husband is listening to... A football game, baseball game, basketball, or, you know, badminton, ice hockey. Whatever it is, it's obviously more important than you. And, uh, and then you come into the room and you say something. Does he hear you? Or was he hearing something else? And because he was hearing something else and focused on that, maybe he heard, but was he listening? Does he have to stop and say, wait a minute, you're not hearing, you're not listening. Okay, pause button or mute or whatever, I know. I'm making this all up, of course, because I have no, no experience. So when you stop hearing, and then, okay, mute, all right, I've stopped hearing uh, whoever the obnoxious, uh, yeah, you know, the, the obnoxious sportscaster guys. You stop listening to them, and you actually, oh, I'm sorry, were you saying something? <laughs> I'm listening now. Before, I could not hear, and I did not hear. It's like the cannot do not of this passage. All right, so paternity promotes propitiatory pleasure. He wants to please the Father. He's listening to the Father. In fact, the very act of listening is a pleasure to the Father, that the, the Son is actually listening. That produces pleasure. And then the Son who applies what he heard provides an even greater pleasure. Down to verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. 
That's the nature. You have the fallen Adamic nature that's intrinsic, but then you have the external diabolical nature that is the uh, paternity there that seeks to satisfy the father's desires. That is a murderer from the beginning and a liar from the beginning. In fact, his nature is the nature of lying. The father's nature is the nature of truth. He's the God of truth. It's not coincidental that the Bible equates murder with lying time and time and time and time again. We, we separate them. In our minds, we separate them. That murder, ooh, murder bad, right? And some people get, you know, capital punishment and they, they want to, you know, take care of murderers. And that's, but lying, that's not so bad. We all lie. Lying's okay. In fact, there's, sometimes it's good to lie. Yeah, there's lie, you know, you, you have, there's good lies that uh, keep you from hurting somebody's feelings, and since we've exalted self-esteem on the primary idol of the universe, then there are good lies if you're trying to avoid hurting somebody's feelings. That's the beneficial lie to the altar and idol of, of self-esteem. All right. <laughs> Where did that come from? All right, side trip on that subject. There are not good lies. There are not good lies. Except for Rahab that put her in Hebrews chapter 11. But that was not a lie. It was a tactical, uh, let's see here. In the context of espionage and warfare, it was a tactical misdirection of the enemy. Okay, it was a lie. She lied. All right. Someday, that's, that's going to be one of my first question and answers when I get to glory. Is that, what was up with that lie that put her in Hebrews chapter 11? All right. So paternity promotes propitiatory pleasure. This is the essence of why this brood of vipers is so intent on fighting everything Jesus has to say. If he said it was day, they'd say it's night. If he said the sky was blue, they'd say, no, it's cloudy. It didn't matter. Whatever he says, they're going to take it to the other side. because They hate him. And it's not rational. If you're sick and tired of trying to find a rational explanation for cosmos wisdom... Let me save you some time. You can't do it. Stop looking at it rationally. You can look at it emotionally, look at it spiritually, look at it diabolically, but don't try to look at it irrationally. That's a dangerous thing to say in a political season. Point D. The devil's cosmos generates and sustains its own reality, which is at odds with God's true reality. You know, reality is what it is. But this world has found a way to deny that. There's even entire philosophies out there that deny that we're here. This is just a, an artificial reality created by our, our minds. We're not really here. We don't really exist here physically. The physical realm that we believe in is just simply a creation of our own belief. <laughs> All right. They write books on this stuff and make money. <laughs> that's a matrix. That's right. All right. John 8, 45 through 47. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He's speaking truth. He is speaking that which conforms to reality. That's truth. Truth is that which conforms to reality. And truth is always finite. Truth is always particular. The lie is, is wide. Any number of things. Truth is particular. You're sitting in gray chairs. The chair is gray. That's truth. That's the statement that conforms to reality. But if I say the chair is blue, the chair is red, the chair is yellow, the chair is uh, mauve, okay? You can, you, can, you can use up the Crayola box and there's still no limit to the lying. That's the nature of the lie. It does not conform to reality and so it can be any fantasy you choose to concoct. Now, he's speaking truth, and that's not their native tongue. It's a foreign language. It's not only they're speaking, to their thinking. So I speak the truth. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Uh, their trust, their confidence, their pistuo, their pistis faith is actually in a different object, an object that is the antithesis of truth. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And this is a do not rather than a cannot. 
They are listening to their other paternity. They are listening to and they are observing this other reality. You know, for the folks that have totally sold out and bought into the, uh, the, the Darwinist mode of, uh, of, of Big Bang and evolution and everything else, that's the reality. That's, that's proven scientific fact. In fact, uh, you know, that's what you teach in schools because that's science, that's fact, that's reality. And this creation stuff is just myth and primitive religion. And we've got to separate that, separation of church and state, right? So we can't teach creation, but boy, evolution, and, and that's all fact, science. That's, that's reality. Wrong. But you see how they substitute what they, their reality becomes the reality. The accepted reality until finally someone speaks up and says, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Until then, reality is what they say it is. And you don't dare uh, go against that. So the devil's cosmos generates and sustains its own reality, which is at odds. I put reality in quotes because it's not truly. Which is at odds with God's true reality. Finally, you know, when you talk about everything there is to say about paternity... And why they're so um, full of this hatred when he keeps contrasting that he's got a different father from them. I think it, we find a summary here in Hebrews, point E. And, and anytime I come to an issue on spiritual paternity, the first thing that pops in my mind is Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews presents a blessed essay regarding the legitimacy and birthright of all God's children. The message that Jesus could not get across to them is one that should be a great encouragement for us. So join me in Hebrews 12. And let's realize that, yes, Jesus knew what he was talking about with this heavenly paternity. And it's a blessing that's not limited to him, but we also embrace this. Because through faith in Christ, we have the same paternity he has. Hebrews 12 Verse 5 says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. There is a message that belongs to the son. It doesn't belong to the stranger and it doesn't belong to the slave, but it belongs to the son. And the message is, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Just think about that. Think about the scourging that uh, Jim Caviezel endured in, in the uh, Passion of the Christ. That's how the father disciplines his son in love. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now That's a rhetorical question, but we can answer it. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Any guesses? Any answers? Who? A son that's not loved. A son that's not wanted. A son that's not loved is not disciplined. Because the father couldn't care. Doesn't matter. Let him do what he wants. But a son whom the father loves, a son whom the father intends to mold and shape and, and uh, bring up into adult status, that son's going to come under discipline. I remember growing up and pointing to other children and their parents and the, the somewhat more lax uh, standards that they had and, and uh, the fewer rules they operated under and the less discipline they ever received and the stuff they got away with. And my dad would say, you know what? Their father doesn't love them the way I love you. Oh, okay. Why do you have to love me so much? <laughs> you know? And it goes on. If you are without discipline, um, which is not true, but if, if you are, of which all of you have become partakers, so we know it's not true, but if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, think about the blessings of having a father who loves you and a father who claims you as opposed to a father who doesn't love you or a father that doesn't claim you, a father that treats you like an illegitimate, uh, uh, you know, we, got, we have harsh language we call, we used to, and, and in our generation it's not even a mark of shame anymore. You know, illegitimacy is not even a, a taboo. 
But it used to be to be of illegitimate birth was a horrible, horrible mark on uh, in, in our society. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. You know, the the only son without the loving discipline of a father is the is the illegitimate son, the one he's ashamed of, the one he doesn't want to claim and the one he does not love, the one he just lets leaves, uh, you know, lets go to his own devices. So we have this privilege we have the privilege of sonship we have this position and in this position we're going to come into conflict with children of a different father and that's where jesus is all right point six then jesus concludes this is verses 49 through 59 the end of the chapter jesus concludes with a summary message of honor and glory it's a summary message of honor and glory who do we honor and what glory do we seek he concludes with a summary message of honor and glory in the present enjoyment of eternal life. And I've got 14 minutes to explain this to you under subpoints A, B, C, D, E, and F. <laughs> I'm suspecting that we'll have one more session in this chapter. Jesus concludes with a summary message. Each time he speaks, there's more and more antagonism. Each time he concludes, there's more and more reaction. This last time, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. So if, if you're going to be rejected once, twice, three times, seven times, what are you going to wrap up your message with? All right, well, you know, he could have turned into a Moses and just called him a bunch of stiff-necked rebels and cursed him and struck a rock or done something, thrown a little hissy fit. No, that's what Moses did, but Jesus doesn't. He does, however, deliver a final message and a hard-hitting message. All right, so 49 through 59. The Jews in verse 48 answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. This now gets pretty serious. This is uh, the direct line in the sand. This, who's I, this is who I'm serving, and you're dishonoring me. You know the consequences for that. Um, and they know the, the consequences for that, based on who he's claiming to be. And yet they're doing it anyway, which I find to be the willful rejection national rejection of the christ by the religious leaders so i do not have a demon but i honor my father and you dishonor me this is a message of honor and glory the antithesis of honor is dishonor if you are not honoring the father then you are dishonoring him or if you're honoring the wrong object honoring yourself honoring the wrong father you're dishonoring god the father you're dishonoring christ then he says i do not seek my glory but there is one who seeks and judges that's why this is a message of honor and glory you don't separate the two sometimes passages will separate them this passage keeps them together honoring god means not seeking our glory seeking our glory dishonors god because it's god's privilege to glorify us as a reward for our faithfulness we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of god he will exalt you at the proper time glory is his department and if you take glory to yourself as your own work assignment, then you're dishonoring God. Telling God he can't handle the glory. Uh, say, you know, I realize, God, that you, you reserve glory for yourself, but I'm, I'm just going to help you out here. And I, I'm going I'm to go ahead and glorify myself here in time so you don't have to worry about glorifying me in eternity. <laughs> and the Father says, oh, that's okay, I won't. Because those who glorify themselves are cast down. Exalt yourself and you shall be cast down. Humble yourself and you shall be exalted. Verse 51, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Keeping the word of God, keeping, making the word of God a living part of your daily experience. Your focus is on eternity. Your focus is on glory. And since uh, you already are presently today a recipient of eternal life, whatever happens to your body is irrelevant. You will never see death in terms of your eternal life. So the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. As far as they're concerned, he just keeps digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And they don't realize they're the ones that are digging the hole deeper, deeper, and deeper. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Let's let us talk about never dying. Ha! The prophets also, they died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham. He died. The prophets also died. <laughs> and oh, by the way, we killed most of them. <laughs> Religious, arrogant leaders in Jerusalem. As Jesus says later on, which of the prophets did you not kill? Being a prophet uh, generally did not lead to a peaceful death in your bed of a ripe old age. Um, whom do you make yourself out to be? Right there, that statement right there, I think, summarizes the whole chapter. That statement right there is the, is the definition of this fallen world. And that definition is boiled down to, who do you think you are? Right? Because every unbeliever in this world and every cosmos-minded believer in this world has this as a motto. Who do you think you are? Don't you know, I am number one. <laughs> and who do you think you are? Because it's all about my personal greatness. You follow the cosmos wisdom, that's the only direction you can go. Because that's the way Satan went with his five I wills. Everything was about him. So those who follow cosmos wisdom, it's all about the pursuit of selfish interests. Who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. See, that parallel between knowing him and keeping his word is like the parallel of uh, becoming saved and coming to a knowledge of the truth. That salvation is step one, but then it's that intimacy in the word of God as we grow in grace and knowledge. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He had a spiritual perspective. He had an eternal perspective. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? I think that verse right there, we, we've not done a lot. I've just kind of, in terms of the chronology, um, I've given you my conclusions and I'm giving you a timeline that, you know, has the crucifixion in 33. I think 33 AD is far better than 32 or 30. Um, there's other views out there. Some people even speculate in terms of 27 AD or 29 AD. There's earlier dates, but I think 33 AD is the best year for the crucifixion. But then for the birth... 4 B.C., 5 B.C., 6 B.C., even up to 7 B.C., depending on the dating method you use and when Herod died. Herod died in 4 B.C., so if he was still alive to, uh, to murder the Bethlehem babies, then obviously Jesus was born prior to that. So if he's born in 7 B.C. and crucified in 33 A.D., what does that make him? 40, that's right. And I think he was 40 or pushing 40, and he probably looked more than 40 because he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I think that the hard life he lived and, and the, uh, the traveling that he did and the, the rough and tumble carpenter life, and I think about Gary and how, uh, how does a carpenter age, all right, and uh, what he went through. So if he was pushing 40. Um, anyway, that's, that's much more explicable for them to say, you're not yet 50 years old, right? If he was the 33 or 32 or, you know, if he was pushing 30 instead of pushing 40, then why wouldn't they say you're not yet 40 years old? And you say you've seen Abraham. Now they, they use 50 for their round number. You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. Another of the great I am statements here in the gospel of John. Which, of course, is a statement of deity, the, the holy name of Yahweh, Jehovah, and uh, blasphemy in their minds to even utter the thing, and so they want to put him to death. Problem is, of course, that it's true. It's not blasphemy if it's true. When he declares to be the eternal I am, he's revealing himself as Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. All right. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they claimed to be sons of Abraham. You know, do you remember that uh, debate with Walter Mondale? And was it, well, no, no, it was Lloyd Benson. It was Lloyd Benson, wasn't it, with Dan Quayle. You remember that years and years ago? 
You're too young. No, no. You don't, you don't watch political debates. Okay, all right. Well, then you will be greatly rewarded, and, and I will suffer wood, hay, and stubble. No, there was a vice presidential debate years ago with, uh, with Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle, uh, they, were, they were saying something about Dan Quayle's youthfulness. He was a young guy. He was 40 or under 40, whatever he was. And so he, uh, he made a statement about John F. Kennedy and his youth and how he was president. And uh, Dan Quayle was just going to be a vice president, right, under uh, George Bush. Anyway, so he makes a he makes a comment about JFK, and then that that just was like a hanging curveball to Lloyd Benson, and Lloyd Benson stopped him right there and said, you know, excuse me, there, Senator, but you know, I knew John Kennedy. John Kennedy was a friend of mine, and he said, you're no Jack Kennedy, and and it was a, I mean, it was a huge slam. It was a massive put down, and it became a a YouTube video clip for all eternity. It's just a a noteworthy thing. Well, I think about that. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine, right? And, and they even played on it later on. Even um, uh, Bob Dole and, and even Ronald Reagan in later years would get up and make speeches and talk about Thomas Jefferson. And, and <laughs> Reagan would say, I knew Thomas Jefferson. He was, a, he was a friend of mine and things like that. But that's what Jesus is saying here, though. He said, I knew Abraham. I still know Abraham. And this Abraham was a friend of mine. He is a friend of mine. When he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They're in glory today. And, and Yahweh Elohim is their God. Abraham is eternally the friend of God. See, I talk about my friend Hugh Halley, my friend Gary Williams. They're still my friends. Uh, I can't fellowship with them at the moment. Because I'm still, uh, I'm still stuck down here in my exile. But they're still my friends. And so the fragrance of memory here with Abraham, the fellowship and the friendship with Abraham, it is what it is. All right. We will come back to this next week with the subpoints, with the honor and the glory. I want you to remember some things about honor and glory. And... Um, Seeking the Father to honor the Father and the Son. Seeking to honor the Son is the highest way that we can honor the Father because the Father established the Son to be the celebrity of the universe. Let me just give you a passage to think about. Uh, Psalm 2. And, and chew on this for the next uh, 167 hours. Because uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the nations are in an uproar, they're devising all these schemes and plots, and none of them are going to come about. He's just laughing at them. Yahweh scoffs at them. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the king that Yahweh establishes is in view. And he says, I have installed my king. Upon Zion, my holy mountain. I think this is waiting a millennial fulfillment for second advent because in first advent, Jesus Christ was not installed yet as king. He was entitled to it, but not yet seated. I will surely tell of the decree of, the, of Yahweh, Jehovah. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the day of the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ, of course, is in the, in the eternity past, but we have it described here. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So in other words, God the Father, Yahweh, has a son. The King, the Christ, that Yahweh is sending to rule over Israel is his own son. Today I have begotten thee. And then he says, worship Yahweh, in verse 11, worship Yahweh with reverence. You want to honor the Father? Honor the Father. Worship Yahweh with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. You want to honor the Father and glorify the Son? Then you're obedient to the Father's plan. But if you glorify yourself and dishonor the Son, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. See, this is the backdrop for the Pharisees' rejection of the Christ. They were commanded to do homage to the Son, and they dishonored the Son. They failed to honor the Father. They glorified themselves. And God the Father indeed speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His fury. This very generation that comes under God's wrath 
as he destroys Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All right, so chew on, um, chew on Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is the backdrop for John 8. We'll come back to it next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth. We've got some meetings coming up, Father. We want to commit to your hands as uh, the deacons discuss the uh, moving, the building project and the other matters. Father, there's also the surprise phone call and emails that came in on Sunday afternoon and Monday morning. Uh, We don't know anything more about that, Father. That's in your hands, too. Um, We are your servants for your purpose to glorify your son. And we look for you to make these matters clear. And they have to be obvious, Father. We've uh, proceeded forward on a unanimous basis. We are proceeding forward, continuing in faith to look for your provision. So, Father, make it clear and uh, open our eyes to your provision and and keep keep the snares and the stumbling blocks away. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.